Judge Bork is not the conservative or liberal nominee. He is America's nominee to the United States Supreme Court. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. This is the second episode of our examination of the nomination and defeat of Judge Robert Bork to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court. The judge's authority derives entirely from the fact that he is applying the law and not his personal values. That is why the American public accepts the decisions of its courts, accepts even decisions that nullify the laws a majority of the electorate or of their representatives voted for. Our whistle stop today is September 15th, 1987, and we are in the Senate caucus room in Washington, D.C., and that voice you just heard was Associate Justice Designee or Designate Robert Bork, starting off his five days of testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. That was his opening statement that kicked off a total of 12 days of tense exchanges between Bork and the witnesses called to stand up for him or rain down upon him. All on both sides, plumbing the legal code for weaponry in the debate over the nature of Bork's jurisprudence and the direction of the highest court in the land. We have become accustomed in the modern age to these periods in American life where heretofore unknown men and women have become the central characters on the national stage, not because of some disaster or calamity or political campaign, but because they have been given a job promotion by the president of the United States. This week in the present time, Brett Kavanaugh is the wallpaper that runs from the screens on our TVs and delis and airports and the digital devices that glow in our pockets. Arrayed across from those characters are the senators, some groping around in their law school learning for pointed questions, others turning up the dial to full fulmination as they exhale in paragraphs. And then there are still others performing their dinner theater twirls and gesticulations that offer the first take at how they might perform someday if they were to be president. These theatrics gain their energy because the person trying to achieve the robe at the end of their time behind the witness table will rule on the most important questions in American daily life. What was at stake with Robert Bork was control over the direction of the Supreme Court for 40 years. We pick 40 years. I guess that's just the the lifespan, the possible lifespan of a justice after they're picked. Seems a little long. Anyway, the point is that he was going to control the direction of the court because he was replacing Justice Powell, who was that swing vote. Just the same way Kavanaugh's replacing Kennedy. President Ronald Reagan had the opportunity to lock in the conservative view, and that conservative view was that the that the con- if the Constitution didn't explicitly say something, then the law had to stay silent on the matter. Liberals, of course, believe that if Bork prevailed, protections for women, African Americans, and the unjustly accused would disappear. The legal stakes were high, which meant the political stakes were high. The relationship between judicial nominations and political supremacy had evolved. Interest groups from the right influenced the Reagan White House, saying, pick conservatives pay us back for electing you by putting conservatives on the court, show us, show us you love us, through picking conservatives. From the left, interest groups crowded the offices of Democratic senators and clogged their phone lines, leaving a forest of pink while you were out messages from constituents who were newly enlivened by the dire state of things. So this political influence caused each side to question the other side's motives in the moment. 
And that colored the view of the man at the center of the drama. To the right, Bork was a hero, stating plainly his devotion to the country's founding document and its principles. If a conservative was one who stood athwart history and yelled stop, then Bork was the chief crossing guard. To the left, he was an imperious scold, trying to take America back to the age where tallow candles lit the way to the bedchamber. After Bork's defeat, of course, his name would become synonymous on the right with the idea of character assassination. It created the conditions for for retaliation in the future. The conclusion after the last gavel sounded after 12 days was that, as Robert Bork himself would say, ultra-liberals in their fight for control of the American legal culture manipulated the public by means other than legal arguments using smear and distortion. This inspired conservatives to fight back using the same methods in the future. If you believe that Robert Bork was destroyed by political means and a clever manipulation of public opinion, then it became became easier to justify to yourself something that you might do that was wholly politically motivated and had nothing to do with jurisprudence, like, for example, denial of of hearings, not denial of a vote, but denial of even hearings for Merrick Garland which created a new Senate practice, which was not there before, protecting the court's ideological balance and perhaps elevating Donald Trump to the presidency. For liberals, the Bork message was that loud, aggressive, coordinated attacks could prevail, and that's part of what you hear in the thin, high timber of urgent interruptions that have taken place during the Kavanaugh testimony. And let me throw in one other larger point before we get down to the nitty-gritty here again, and in this case, I'm relying on an argument by Jonah Goldberg in the National Review, And here's what I think Jonah's saying and what I'm going to add to it. I've argued that Bork and all post-Bork political energy in the Supreme Court fight comes from the fact that judicial selections have been made an electoral issue. So vote for us or judges will will take or infringe on your rights. What Jonah argues, rightly, is that there's another slippage that's a part of our current Supreme Court lockup. Since political success has slipped, which is to say Congress and the legislative branches have become less effective or less effective in the way that people want them to be. You see the distinction there. Stuff has slushed over the courts over the years. So the executive and the legislature can't do their job. So people expect the courts to step in. Here's here's Jonah Goldberg. These fights wouldn't be nearly so ugly if we didn't invest so much power in the Supreme Court It shouldn't have that it shouldn't have in the first place, he writes. Until the Robert Bork nomination in 1987, Supreme Court fights were remarkably state affairs. But in the late 80s, the court had become a bulwark of sorts of, and I would disagree with that, of course, those of you who are Abe Fortas fans, as we all are here in, in Whistle Stop land, but nevertheless, never mind. Picking Goldberg up by her again. The court had, he's largely right. It's just some exceptions. The court had become a bulwark of sorts, of policies and laws that should rightly be in the portfolio of the legislative or the executive branch, or better, left to the various states. As a result, on any number of issues, most conspicuously abortion policy, the court became more important than the presidency or Congress. No wonder fights over Supreme Court appointments started to look more and more like political campaigns than debates over the finer points of judicial philosophy. What this leaves us with, if we've done the math right then, is that the use of the court as an overt selling tool of politics, which conservatives perfected in the Reagan years, has implicit in that sales job to the electorate an overly powerful vision of the court in the American system, a vision that the conservative nominees put forward by conservatives actually don't agree with. 
which is to say a vision of the court as supreme in American life. Okay, well, I hope nobody was jogging because that might have uh, might have made you confused while you were listening to it. But now back to the particulars of the case. Liberals objected to Robert Bork because by replacing Powell, he was replacing the court's swing vote. And he was replacing it with originalism. Originalism defined by the idea that, well, here's Bork talking about originalism. The judge's responsibility is to discern how the framers' values defined in the context of the world they knew apply in the world we know. So, for example, the founders' original intent did not include a right to privacy from which flowed abortion rights. That's what Bork believed. Bork also believed that it was a usurpation of states' legislative authority. Liberals pointed to Bork's opinions that also held the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution did not ban discrimination against women. Bork returned to the text of the Constitution repeatedly. Here he is on the death penalty. The issue is almost concluded by the fact that the death penalty is specifically referred to and assumed to be an available penalty in the Constitution itself. It is a little hard to understand how a penalty that the framers explicitly assumed to be available can somehow become unavailable because of the very Constitution the framers wrote. Liberals also worried about Bork because he did not navigate by stare decisis. That's the court, the idea that the court's previous acts are binding precedents. That meant that he was fine with undoing settled law. The threat was that he would not just rule a particular way, but that he might convince other justices with the force of his Solomon Grundy intellect, and that charging brain combined with a view of undoing previous decisions would mean a big backsliding in the protection of rights, not merely rulings that didn't find new rights for people. So here's how the Times wrote about Bork on the day of his confirmation. Judge Bork's record suggests he would move the law of the land sharply to the right on issues like the death penalty, homosexual rights, government aid to the religious schools, sexual harassment of women, access to the courts, presidential power, the constitutionality of special prosecutor law, antitrust, and perhaps affirmative action. So you can see why Democrats were nervous. Democrats argued that the Reagan White House was, were the ones who shot first in this use of politics as a weapon. They thought the conservatives were trying to do an end run around the electoral desires of the electorate. Remember, Reagan and the conservatives had just, just lost the bruising 1986 election. The country, as it expressed its will in the congressional elections, had given the conservative viewpoint the thumbs down. And so what they saw in the Bork nomination was Reagan on the ropes. Remember, he's also actually on the ropes because of um, of Iran-Contra. But ideologically on the ropes, based on the loss in 1986 and the country's, as the Democrats read it, revulsion to the, to the conservative overreach, was trying to nevertheless sneak in an ideological candidate on the court to lock in that conservatism that they were losing through the ballot box. And, it would, and, and Democrats also claimed that when it came to scare tactics and guilt by association, which they would then be um, accused of doing uh, by Republicans with respect to the way they treated Bork, Democrats said, wait a minute. In the 1986 race, Reagan and other Republican leaders campaigned for their Senate candidates, Republican Senate candidates, that is, by arguing that Democrats would, quote, allow drugs, thugs, and hoodlums to roam the streets by appointing, quote, sociology majors to the bench. Democrats claiming basically... Uh, that um, that Republicans in 86 had started the whole character assassination business. So a good example of this Democratic argument made as the Bork nomination is coming up is one that was made by Hodding Carter III, former journalist and communications official in the Carter White House. Bork doesn't speak for the slumbering majority, he wrote. 
And here's some of that op-ed. Some Republicans are being quaintly modest these days about the fierce integrity of their purpose, hiding their ideological lights under bushels of sweet reason. Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah comes immediately to mind. But behind their solemn denials of Judge Bork's radicalism, they can barely mask their Cheshire cat grins. They think they know what a Bork victory would produce, and they can hardly wait. What it might produce, and might is the operative word still, is exactly what they have been unable to win at the ballot box, in Congress or before the court to date. Claiming to speak for a slumbering majority, claiming even more hypocritically to be speaking in favor of a court that does not interfere with the political process, they intend for the Bork nomination to produce victories denied them by the process so far. And that is why the nomination should be rejected. Judge Bork, witty and engaging as he is, has been nominated for clear political and ideological motives that have no national mandate. The president has fought for that mandate, and the persistence of a divided government throughout his tenure proves that he has not been given it. At this late date in the life of a tarnished administration, remember Iran-Contra is still going on, the Senate should not provide what the people have withheld. Okay, there. So there you get the the political valence here. Okay, now, remember Joe Biden? Well, the white-hot objectives of the liberal groups posed a challenge for old smoking Joe. The Delaware senator and Judiciary Committee chairman was running for president. He needed the support of liberal groups, but he also couldn't look like they were, they were uh, that he was their captive. He was running in the 1988 presidential race as a moderate who didn't give in to the old thinking of the party's interest groups. So he had a and he had a particularly particular vulnerability on this charge because he was already on the record saying that he supported Bork if he came up. So if he was going to then not support Bork, it was going to look like he was doing it just because of the interest groups. And just to remind you of that previous thing that he had said, here's Joe Biden. Say the administration sends up Bork, Mr. Biden told the Philadelphia Inquirer in November of 1986, and after our investigations, he looks a lot like Scalia. I'd have to vote for him. And if the special interest groups tear me apart, that's the medicine I'll have to take. Okay. Now, by the way, you should remind, this is Biden voted for Scalia. So we are just in a completely different atmosphere than the one we are in now. If you watch the Democrats trying out for the, for the Democratic nomination who sit on the Judiciary Committee, can you imagine anybody thinking of running for president who would nominate – or sorry, who would vote for the nomination of a judge as conservative as Antonin Scalia, whether they were voting to be the swing vote or not? The theatricality is uh, – it's the Stanislavski method, of course, but it's, uh, it's quite thick. And there is no doubt that all of those um, thespians are in no way going to vote uh, for Brett Kavanaugh, who is less conservative than – Antonin Scalia. So anyway, things have changed a lot in America. If Biden was going to switch his position, given that quote to the Philadelphia Inquirer, he thought he had to do so through careful legal reasoning. The idea was that you could convince the American people through force of public argument that you had changed your mind or had modified your thinking based on a set of principles which you could lay out in reason. As I mentioned, this was a time before Twitter. Uh, Biden would have to make his case based on the idea that a controlling ideological vote on the court made the standard different for evaluating Bork now than it did um, when he talked to the Philadelphia Inquirer in November of 86. So why are you changing your mind, Joe? Well, this is about the whole control of the direction of the court, not just about a single justice. So 
also, Biden could say his previous remarks were in the abstract, and now he was uh, evaluating Bork in the present. Okay, so there was Biden's presidential desires, trying to run as a moderate or a person not captive of the interest groups. And then there was his actual desire as chairman of the committee. And the actual desire as chairman of the committee is he didn't want Bork to be nominated. But that still put him in a pickle with these liberal groups because the liberal groups were saying things like, you had Kennedy, you had um, the National Abortion Rights Action League, you had um, Benjamin Hooks, who was the executive director of the NAACP, who said this, we will fight we'll fight it, meaning the Bork nomination, all the way until hell freezes over, and then we'll skate across the ice. I'm not sure what skating across the ice does it does for you when you're fighting until hell freezes over, but I guess if your commitment to the cause is determined by the length of your metaphor, then that shows some kind of commitment. In any event, Biden, because he had to convince these conservative Democrats to vote against Bork, didn't want opposition to Bork to look like it was merely a sop to the liberal groups because that would mean that those conservative senators would get pressure from their voters who didn't want them to be knee-jerk liberals, didn't want their representatives to be knee-jerk liberals. So to explain all this, Biden convened a group of liberal interest groups to plot strategy. In attendance was the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, the Alliance for Justice, the NAACP, Legal and Education Fund, and the Women's Legal Defense Fund. He explained to them, okay, here's how it's going to work. You run to the fire hydrant, turn left, I'm going to fake it to you, and then you run all the way to Mrs. Thisbe's house. He explained that he needed to control the message. He was on their side, but he needed to keep the public rhetoric cooled so that he wouldn't look like a captive or else that would mess him up. As, as Biden would explain afterwards, my biggest worry related to my being able to control the strategy. The hearings were to be structured to appeal to a conservative Southern Democratic vote. Those were the swing votes. And said Biden, I didn't want people or arguments that would preclude broad-based support. Okay, so the meeting breaks up. Everybody agrees we're not going to do anything that makes you look like you're in the pocket of the big liberal interest groups. So Biden takes a couple steps down the, the, the marble hallway and receives a report that a Washington Post reporter has all the details in the meeting and is going to run the piece. The entire meeting was leaked to the Post and to the Times. And here's what the Post wrote. In a private meeting in his office earlier, Biden promised civil rights lobbyists that he will lead the opposition to Bork and make the fight his top priority, according to knowledgeable sources. Biden told the activists whose constituencies are important to his presidential campaign that he will detail his reasoning for opposing Bork in his upcoming statement. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, the groups are leaking, uh, maybe to screw Biden. They were, you know, supporters of Dukakis or, or someone else. Or they were trying to get him on the record, right? Okay, you made these promises behind the closed doors, Joe. But you promised us one thing there and you might get slippery on the other end. So we're going to lock you in. Whatever the, whatever the, the job... The dispassionate chairman of the Senate form, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee was going to weigh the nominee with all due uh, sagaciousness and uh, right action uh, was now in the papers outed as basically a Democratic interest group puppet. Nevertheless, Biden was going to give that speech on the floor of the Senate, and he started by trying to ease his way out of his past support for Bork by noting that back when Scalia was confirmed, He'd voted for him, and he'd said this uh, during the Scalia pick, which was relevant in the Bork case. Biden, we should proceed with extreme caution before approving the nomination of any individual whose appointment would fundamentally alter in any direction the balance of the court. So what Biden was trying to do was shift the standard and set up a special standard for nomination like Bork's. 
in these kinds of debates. If you define the standard, you can define the outcome. So that was his opening pitch when he first reacted to the nomination. He also raised the political stakes, echoing the point that Hodding Carter had made. I will resist, wrote Biden, any efforts by this administration to do indirectly what it has failed to do directly in Congress, and that is impose an ideological agenda on our jurisprudence. So what was at issue here was not whether the president had the right to name his nominees, but whether he had the right in the naming of one nominee to take the court in a big leaping direction from the slow evolution it was on. This put into play the strength of Bork's conservatism, which was precisely the reason he was picked, but which also meant he was a shift in the court from like going from like fifth gear to second gear. Democrats would argue that the engine wasn't built to make that kind of a rapid shift. Now, the standard Biden was pushing against here is the standard that the president should receive deference from the Senate unless the Senate was faced with a nominee who was overwhelmingly disqualified on ethical or professional grounds. Of course, there were no such objections to Bork. So now what's happening over at the White House? Well, the death of the Bork nomination was the president's really was uh, embedded in the president's original decision to pick the fight because Democrats had just won those eight seats in 1986, delivering Reagan his biggest defeat since he lost in 1976 when he ran against Jerry Ford as a more conservative Republican candidate. So that meant the Democrats held the Senate 55 to 45. That's a 10-seat majority. Reagan had campaigned against those Democrats, warning Republican voters and independent voters that Democrats wouldn't confirm the right kind of judges if they were voted into into, uh, office. Voters had heard that message and it had not convinced them to vote for Republicans. Instead, they rushed over and voted for the Democrats. So why did Reagan and his team imagine that the political world would like it when he pushed a judge that was so conservative? The Southern Democrats, having just seen how the issue was ineffective in the election of 1986, would feel no pressure. What's amazing about this is that basically what Reagan was relying on, the conservatives in the group were relying on, was the strength of a norm. And that norm was that presidents got to pick their nominees. And this is amazing. John Bolton in particular, John Bolton, who is now the national security advisor for for a president who has done really groundbreaking work on norm eradication in the presidency and in, well, in American life, was nevertheless relying for strategic purposes on the idea that the Democrats, even though they were in control of the Senate and were up by 10 seats, that they would nevertheless have to hew to a norm that said a president should be able to pick his uh, Supreme Court nominee and have that nominee confirmed. History is full of movement. Not only did Reagan pick a nominee, he hoped to shoot past the newly emboldened Democrats, who was a conservative. He had also picked one who had a long paper trail and whose bedside manner, or perhaps I mean benchside manner, was actively antagonistic. As Bork was preparing to testify, liberal groups were running ads. I mean, they were running them everywhere. And the most famous one was a 60-second television spot paid for by People from the American Way, in which the actor, Gregory Peck, said of Judge Bork, among other things, he defended poll taxes and literacy tests, which kept many Americans from voting. He opposed the civil rights law that ended whites-only signs at lunch counters. He didn't believe the Constitution protects your right to privacy. The 60-second ad then ended with this powerful call to action. Robert Bork could have the last word on your rights as citizens, but the Senate has the last word on him. Please urge your senators to vote against the Bork nomination, because if Robert Bork wins a seat on the Supreme Court, it will be for life, his life and yours. 
So hearings start, uh, and here are two representative voices from those hearings. The first one is from Republican Orrin Hatch of Utah. It is hard to understand why your nomination would generate controversy. The answer is found in one word, which is tragic in this judicial context, and that word is politics. The second voice is Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts. All Americans should realize that the confrontation over this nomination is the result of a deliberate decision by the Reagan administration. Rather than selecting a real judicial conservative to fill fill Justice Powell's vacancy, the president has sought to appoint an activist of the right whose agenda would turn us back to the battles of a bitterly divided America. Reopening issues long thought to be settled and wounds long thought to be healed. I believe the American people strongly reject the administration's invitation to roll back the clock and relive the more troubled times of the past. And I urge the committee and the Senate to reject the nomination of Mr. Bork. And here's the way Alistair Cook described Robert Bork in one of Cook's famous letters from America. This imperious face with its amused, skeptical eyes, he looks like some worldly, confident burger in a Rembrandt painting. I think it's very good. Two fun facts about Bork from Battle for Justice, How the Bork Nomination Shook America by Ethan Broner. It was widely known that Bork had ambitions for the Supreme Court. At Christmas in 1974, Yale Law students produced a skit, Roasting Judicial Conservatives. Bork's tennis playing was used as a vehicle to mock his ambition. The students sang that Bork so wanted to play tennis that he would run down his mother, trample little old ladies, get up at 5 a.m., all just to play tennis. Because Bob Bork would do anything to get on the court. In 1975, when William O. Douglas retired from the court, it was thought that Bork might be chosen to fill the vacancy, but Gerald R. Ford felt that the public still associated Bork's name with the Watergate scandal. He picked John Paul Stevens. Instead, John Paul Stevens, you'll all remember, two things. One, turned out to be quite a liberal, is one of those liberal justices held up by the Federalist Society and others, along with David Souter, as proof that Republican presidents, who are not strapped into the harness of correct thinking on how to make judicial nominations, will pick people who might change their view on things when they get to the court and turn out to, uh, to, to, to bat for the other team. What's amazing about the evolution of the way in which, and I know I've said this before, but it continues to amaze me, the evolution in which politics is connected or not connected to judicial nominations is that Reagan in 76 running against Ford could have used the nomination to an open seat on the bench as a way to wallop Ford about the neck and head, arguing that he was going to pick a squish, as they call them, somebody who would go on the court and wouldn't rule the right way. Um, you, you remember this is a time from which Republican justices were picked who, in the end, five of whom, picked by Republican presidents, voted uh, in support of Roe v. Wade. So my point is, uh, again, another way in which the standards and norms and testing qualifications for these kinds of behaviors and picks really changed over a, a fast period of time. We mentioned the fact that Ford picked Stevens instead of uh, Bork because of the Watergate scandal. Well, what about the Watergate scandal? Well, one of the problems from Bork's past was that he had 
played a role in the Saturday Night Massacre in 1973 as Nixon's Solicitor General. Bork was the third-ranking member of the Justice Department. He'd been the one to carry out Nixon's orders to can Watergate Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox over the Watergate tapes. Now, Elliot Richardson, who had resisted Nixon's order and resigned in protest, told the Reagan White House that he would defend Bork's action at the time. And in the end, he did. And it didn't do Bork much harm because, I mean, except with liberal Democrats, except because the final reports on Watergate concluded that Bork, while he had in fact fired Archibald Cox, had done nothing to impede the Justice Department investigation. And Richardson, who had resigned, testified that Bork had stayed um, had in fact stayed on to oversee the investigation and make sure nothing was fussing with it, and also to provide continuity in the department, uh, which was important. The Bork hearings, which started on September 15, 1987, lasted 12 days, and there were 110 witnesses, including uh, uh, and, and included also things like a letter from former President Jimmy Carter, who called Bork's views on civil rights obnoxious and urged the rejection of his nomination. One of the amazing things about Carter writing that, not amazing things, but it just gives you a sense of how politics had much more of a kind of patchwork quilt quality to it, is that Carter writes that letter about Bork's views on civil rights issues, and one of Bork's strong defenders, who in fact testified on his behalf, was Lloyd Cutler, a famous longtime Washington lawyer, founder of Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, who had worked for Carter, who was one of Bork's sort of character witnesses. The hearings were explosive from the start, and the start was the first explosive thing. Bork's supporters, called Borkettes by no one, wanted the Judiciary Committee hearing to start very quickly. They wanted Bork to be robe-ready by the beginning, by the opening day of the court's new term on the 5th of October, but that didn't happen, and according to the Washington Post, that became a problem. The September 15th date was the biggest problem for us, a White House official said in retrospect. The senators started out inclined to vote with us, but with the two and a half months, there was a lot more time to gin up public fear and make it sound credible. When the talking did start, Bork was inflexible. He denied that he had any ideological agenda for the Supreme Court. This is a Chicago Tribune account. And said that he would, quote, be disgraced in history if he tried to modify his views at Senate hearings in order to win confirmation. He sparred angrily and some and, and repeatedly with Senator Edward Kennedy one of his strongest opponents, referring to a charge that he would greatly set back minority rights if confirmed. Bork bristled. Well, aside from the fact that the argument assumes something about me which is not true, it also assumes that there are four other justices who have sinister views, which is not true. It overlooks my record in this field as judge, and it overlooks what I've said. It really would be preposterous for me to sit here and say things I've said to you and then get confirmed and get on the Supreme Court and do the opposite. I would be disgraced in history. Aside from everything else, I'm not going to do that. But believe that or not, my record as a judge does not justify the opposition by these groups. At one point when Kennedy played a tape of Bork that seemed to contradict what he had said earlier about judicial precedent, Bork criticized the tactic. You and I both know it's possible not to give a full and measured response Bork was saying that he'd been, uh, the recording came from a, a kind of back and forth exchange at a law conference. It's not the kind of thing to be weighed against my more considered statements. Kennedy accused Bork of jettisoning the baggage of a lifetime and added, all of us are asking, who is the real Robert Bork? And what risks are we taking for the future if he becomes a justice of the Supreme Court? 
Bork retorted, if those charges were not so serious, the discrepancies between the evidence and what you say would be highly amusing. I have no ideological agenda, and if I had, it wouldn't do me any good. The New York Times interviewed some of Bork's fellow law school professors and students about how he was doing in the, in the hearings. The atmosphere of the hearings, Professor Damascus said, reminds me of a first-year law class in constitutional law, where you very often find students throwing gross simplicities at the professor, and the professor saying, wait a minute, there are distinctions here. I think Bork is finding that you don't make yourself popular by drawing those distinctions. I think he's had it. One law student put the hearings bluntly in that same article. Instead of a bunch of white guys trying to talk law, they should have a woman of color who won't be able to get an abortion. That's what this is about. In the middle of the campaign and the hearings, Joe Biden was consumed by a real problem, plagiarism. First, there were reports of an incident uh, while he was a student attending Syracuse Law School. The faculty determined and he had lifted five pages of a report. He was given an F in the course, he argued, He should be allowed to repeat it. He did, and in the end, he got a B. This report, however, encouraged hygiene work by the reporters covering the campaign. They started to pull the comb through what would otherwise have been turgid campaign speeches, and they found familiar voices there. Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, and British labor leader Neil Kinnock. It was a question of character, said pundits, and that brought the cameras to the driveway of Biden's home. The press was hot on his heels the way they had been with Gary Hart when, just earlier in the same campaign, Hart had been accused of stepping out on his wife. The infraction, of course, in Biden's case wasn't as serious, but the result was the same. A post-Watergate White House could not include members who had engaged in transgressions. Biden kicked himself out of the race. I do it with incredible reluctance, and it makes me angry. I'm angry with myself for having been put in the position, put myself in the position, of having to make this choice. While Biden's presidential hopes were falling apart, so were Bork's chances. The law professor routine was not winning over skeptics. Bork had been thorough and complete in his answers, but all that information was being used against him. He was not winning over people with his sweet, sweet reason. As the Washington Post reported, Bork's tightly reasoned views on constitutional issues were often lost in translation, and he seemed unaware of the damage he was doing himself. And there were the apparent inconsistencies. By the second day of the hearing, Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, Democrat, had coined the term confirmation conversion, a tag that stuck to Bork as he wove through a 25-year record of strongly stated opinions, including harsh criticism of several key Supreme Court decisions. On the First Amendment protections, the application of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to sex discrimination case and other issues, Bork retracted or modified long-held positions. Biden, in this retrospective piece from which I've been quoting, was delighted. Every time I could get him to recant, I won, he said. People don't believe in recantations. The White House had also botched the pitch. When Bork was first nominated, the administration portrayed Bork as a conservative proponent of judicial restraint. Conservatives argued that his philosophy should not disqualify him from service on the high court. But what the pragmatists knew was that to win Senate confirmation in a body controlled by Democrats, they had to shift the argument. So the president's spokespeople tried to convince the public that Justice Bork was really a moderate. A 
moderate ju- jurist in the mold of retiring Justice William Powell. Now here's one of those pragmatic voices. Anyone who read the election results last year knows the Republicans don't control the Senate anymore, said Tom Corlogus, a Washington lawyer who was running the Bork nomination effort for the White House. There weren't enough conservatives left to win. We had to calm the conservatives down. What he means there is the conservatives from the outside groups who were whooping it up on on behalf of, of Bork. Corlogus was saying the more they whooped it up on behalf of him, the more the nomination would be associated with the most conservative views of the Republican Party and spook any Democrats whose votes they would need to get Bork confirmed. It's basically the reverse of the problem that Biden was dealing with with the liberal interest groups. But Coralogus' strategy ran into problems at the Justice Department, where all the true conservatives were working and working hard to portray Bork in that fashion. Eric Glitzenstein, a Washington Post reader, uh, wrote to the paper, which is what people did before Twitter, and nailed the switchbacks. Rather than continue to defend its staunchly conservative nominee and its right to place him on the Supreme Court, a risky but honest strategy, the administration is now waging an all-out battle to distance Judge Bork from many of the legal positions he has taken in the past. On September 26, 1987, Bork paid a visit to the White House. The strategy to have him win the day with his testimony and not publicly push from the president had backfired. And here's what Bork uh, is quoted to have said from the Gittenstein book on the nomination. I've been trying to win this on my own. You guys aren't doing everything you can. I need the president. Unless there is a personal presidential effort, I'm going to lose. I may lose anyway, but I can't win without the president. The meeting didn't go so well. He didn't get what he wanted, and he immediately went to the White House press room and made the case for himself. He argued that he'd been mistreated and that there should be a formal Senate vote. He was not backing down. Well, why didn't the White House want to go out four square behind him? Well, they didn't want another loss for the president, weakened by the Iran-Contra, somewhat stumbling around in his presidency. Why did he want to put his mitts around this thing and, um, and suffer a loss? Well... That strategy didn't hold up much, and on the 30th of September, just a few days later, though the White House had been slow, the president went out to the old executive office building to defend his BIC, making the case that Bork was qualified and that those who opposed him were simply doing the bidding of the special interests. We will not be satisfied with allowing special interests to determine the qualifications to serve on our country's highest court. So here at this crucial time is an anecdote of the president trying to make the personal sale to Arlen Specter flew with the president on Air Force One for the bicentennial celebration of the Constitution. The timing of the event was, of course, important. It gave Reagan a chance to lobby on the sly. One of the key undecided members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Arlen Specter, Republican moderate from pro, pro-choice moderate, I should say, from Pennsylvania. I once covered Arlen Specter as the pro-choice moderate of the Republican Party in 1996, in which he was campaigning basically as a pro-choice candidate. As a young reporter, I thought he had a chance to, to win some votes. He didn't win any votes from, from anyone. At a luncheon with Specter and the president, Senator John Heinz, a Republican of Pennsylvania, brought a nine-year-old African-American girl to the head table where Specter was seated next to the president. The girl, in a soft voice, this is according to the, post, the Washington Post, of course, the girl, in a soft voice that was barely audible to Specter, looked at Reagan and asked, Will Judge Bork protect my civil rights? I'm sure Judge Bork will protect the rights of blacks and the rights of everyone, and I wouldn't have nominated him if I didn't think so, said the president. Then the president glanced at Specter and said, 
Did you hear that, Arlen? Yes, Mr. President, I heard it, Specter said. But he was not convinced. Two weeks later, Specter, the moderate Republican, rendered his verdict. Having come to like and respect Judge Bork, he wrote in the Washington Post, I reluctantly decided to vote against him because I had substantial doubts about what he would do with fundamental minority rights, about equal protection of the law, and freedom of speech. Specter continued, the, her- the hearings brought a record 140,000 calls and letters to my office. Wherever I went, it seemed that everyone had a strong opinion. The pressure was pervasive. On the afternoon the hearings ended, I talked again with Judge Bork for more than an hour and met later that evening with Lloyd Cutler, the former advisor to Jimmy Carter, who had been a principal supporter. My substantial doubts persisted. So I decided to vote no. Specter's decision to oppose Bork was a turning point in the bitter struggle. Shortly thereafter, the Bork nomination collapsed completely. Senator David Pryor of Arkansas then, and Senator Terry Sanford of North Carolina and Bennett Johnston of Louisiana all announced they would vote against Bork. All Southern Democrats, if the South had fallen, that meant there was no way. In the end, Bork was too conservative in ideology and not flexible in performance, perhaps admirably so. We had trouble showing flexibility for or understanding of was the real-world consequences of his positions. As the Washington Post put it, by the end of the long and painful struggle, there was a consensus in the Senate that it was Bork and his lifetime of iconoclastic resistance to the main tides of American politics and jurisprudence that lay at the heart of his downfall. On the 23rd of October, 1987, the Senate voted against Bork's confirmation, 58 to 42. Six Republicans voted no. All but two Democrats also voted no. New York Times wrote by Linda Greenhouse, Bork's nomination is rejected and said that Reagan was saddened. Judge Bork was the 27th Supreme Court nomination to fail in the country's history, the sixth in this century, and the first since 1970 when the Senate rejected President Nixon's nomination of G. Harold Carswell by a vote of 51 to 45. There have been 104 Supreme Court justices in the nation's history. Carswell was the one that was defeated that ultimately led to the selection of Powell, by the way. It's all very exciting here. Carswell goes down. Powell gets picked. Bork is supposed to replace Powell. He loses. Kennedy gets picked. Kennedy leaves. And now Kavanaugh. So it's all kind of in a lineage here. It's almost like we planned it. The vote came two weeks after Bork, in the face of expected defeat, said he would not withdraw his name and wanted the full Senate vote on his nomination. I'm still reading from the Times here. In a statement issued from his chambers at the federal courthouse here, remember he's an appellate judge, where he still serves on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, Judge Bork said he was, quote, glad the debate took place. There is now a full and permanent record by which the future may judge not only me, but the proper nature of a confirmation proceeding. President Reagan, in a statement released by the White House, said, I am saddened and disappointed that the Senate has bowed today to a campaign of political pressure. Burke's supporters said he'd been maligned. They said special interests had mugged him. This is Republican Senator John Danforth, who had testified at Burke's hearing on his behalf. In our house, some of us helped generate the trashing. Others of us yielded to it. But all of us, myself included, all of us have been accomplices to it. Liberal groups had mugged him, though they saw their success as proof that Americans believed that there were certain unwritten rights that the Constitution protected. It can be both true 
that Bork was savaged by the special interests and the millions of dollars in money that was spent on the airwaves, and that he also represented too much of a major departure for the court, and that he could not win the day with his charisma, which also mixed uh, that charisma did with the message underlying it all that he was very much smarter than everyone else. So he might have, in fact, been not elevated to the court on the merits, while at the same time, public pressure was created by all those outside groups. Biden defended himself in the Washington Post in an opinion piece with the headline, That Was No Lynch Mob. Here's Biden. When the verdict of history is declared on this important struggle, all of the advertising of pressure groups right and left will shrink to an appropriate degree of insignificance. You don't get insignificance when Gregory Peck is in your ad. Anyway. That verdict will read that in the bicentennial year of the Constitution, the Senate and the American people declared once again their insistence on the inalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that motivated the founding fathers two centuries ago. Supreme Court battles are obviously political, but there has always been a loose balance between the politics and fair jurisprudence. Judges had a view on things, of course, going into the job, but the norm was that they would take in new information and decide in the moment. They wouldn't hew to a political line. What has changed, and what changed more with Bork, was the idea of public confidence in the fairness and detachment of the nominee. That's what was called into question. If that was the case, then it was your associations that mattered more than your rulings or what you said. Or they mattered more than anything you could say in your own defense to overcome those. So who you were associated with, the ideology, the president, the party— was something you had to defend yourself against, not anything you'd actually written or said on the bench. Is that really what happened in the Bork case? Is that really what happened in the specific Bork case? You draw your own conclusions. Tom Goldstein, publisher of the popular SCOTUS blog, though, argues that the objective truth of what happened isn't as important as the interpretation of what happened, and here's Tom. The upshot of the Bork affair is that we have this ridiculous system now where nominees shut up and don't say anything that might signal what they really think. Not sure I agree that's what hurt Bork. It wasn't that Bork gave answers. It's that he gave awful answers. Still, the received whiz, the received lesson that directs other people's actions doesn't have to be the actual thing that happened. So that's the story of Robert Bork and his nomination. We hope you've received some wisdom here, and we thank you for listening. That's it for this edition of the Whistle Stop podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. You'll find us in the history section. Those reviews help us spread the word. Also, spread the word. Our producer and editor and shaper of content is Jocelyn Frank. Managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, is one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson helps turn the table that makes the thing go. I'm not sure why turning the table makes it go, but she helped me crunch through all of this amazing material that that Brian brought forward and kept me from making too many factual errors. All of the ones I made, of course, are on my own head. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio who helped make this episode happen and all of the good folks at CBS Radio who are so accommodating to us. Thanks to you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new edition, episode, or tale of politics and presidencies. Thanks for listening.